The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Making us your own. You brought us in, you washed us with the blood of Christ as we just sang, and we say thank you for that. And as we sit in that and, and are thankful for it, revel in it, we also want to lift up our eyes and look out and see others, to see the rest of the, of the world, and think about the rest of the world and talk about the rest of the world and talk about ourselves in relation to the rest of the world and to ask you for the nation's the rest of the world. And that's going to be tricky for us. So will you guide us? Will you give us clarity in speaking and in thinking this morning? It's going to be tricky for us because we're talking about something that's big and wide and broad and something also that's very narrow. Something that's universal and particular. At the same time, it, it does fit together, but sometimes we don't do a good job of talking all the way through or thinking all the way through such things and kind of just camp in one side of that or the other. We lift up our eyes and we see all the world and see all of the peoples and then we see also the one single way that you have, that you have acted to save. The particular path in a particular person. So help us to think that through well and worship in it. We got our time here, Spirit of God. Give, give clarity to our speaking and thinking and build up your church. Build us up in the way we should be built and build us up for the mission that you have before us, the mission that you are on and are calling us into. So thank you. Thank you for wanting to do that, and thank you for doing it this morning. I thank you in advance for it. trust you to build up the church and honor Christ's name here. Thank you, Lord. Amen. First and foremost, the church must be concerned to hold sound doctrine. First and foremost. We have to be about the truth given, to God for, given by God for our good. We've been talking about that first primary need for a while now because that's where Paul starts this letter to Timothy that we call 1 Timothy. He's giving us through Timothy, he's, through, through Paul and through Timothy, he's giving to us, the church, the whole congregation here, what is important for us to think about and how we are to shape, how we are to act. What's the, what's the structure? What are the guidelines? How does this place work, this church? As we think about building a building, we're talking about the foundation here, and every foundation has to be right or you're going to get into trouble eventually. So the, the foundation, the first thing, first and foremost, sound doctrine. We've been talking about that. But now, once we have sound doctrine straightened out, now what? What do we actually do with that? Assuming that we have the firm foundation, have that sorted out, and have elders and teachers who will feed us with sound doctrine only, who will feed us with that and feed us and feed us regularly with that, then what next? And if we don't know how to answer the what next question, we're going to have a problem. Like we all have when all we do is feed, 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 feed. If you sit down at the breakfast table to marvelous, good, healthy, sound food and you feed on it and you feed on it and you feed on it and then it turns into lunchtime and you feed on that and you feed on that and it turns into dinner time and you feed and it's all good. It's really healthy. It's, it's marvelous. What happens? Right? There's got to be some matching output for the intake. It's got, it's got to be for something. It's got, it's got to go through me. 
feeding and, let's say, working, feeding and working form a, a cycle. They need each other. Both sides of that, it actually keeps us healthy and strong and actually keeps us hungry, keeps our appetite. When we're putting out, we want to take in more. That makes us effective and, and productive. It gives a purpose to the feeding. So feeding and working need each other. And if we, the church, just sit down and only feed on sound doctrine as if that is the total goal, as if that is the end-all, be-all, and there's nothing that it's for, we're going to miss something. And probably grow lethargic and less effective and less healthy. And so knowing that, God now turns in this letter to, to tell us beginning here and, and moving on, to tell us what it is that we are to do. He never gets us away from sound doctrine. It's all laced through it. There's going to be plenty of sound doctrine in today's passage, in fact. Sound doctrine about this one way that God saves. But we're going to see him calling us. Here's what you do with it. Starting here and moving on through the rest of the book, he's going to talk, talk to the church directly about what we do. That's what we're going to look at here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let me read the first seven verses. Then make two observations from it. And we're never going to get far from sound doctrine. And we must always keep in mind that as much as I talk about what we are to do, that especially this morning what we're going to see is behind this, this is what God's doing. He calls us to be a part of it. It's not that we go do it apart from him. We go do it with him, always fueled by the, the sound doctrine. So here's 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Two observations, and here's the first. Express as a command because that's how Paul puts it to us. Pray and live for all sorts of people because God wants to save all sorts of people. Pray and live for all sorts of people because God wants to save all sorts of people. Verse 1 begins with Paul's first specific urging for the church as a whole. What he calls us to do, this is interesting, first, pray. Before we look at that, there's something else we need to get clear in our minds here because it's going to shape how we understand the whole paragraph because it runs all through this paragraph. We need to be clear on what Paul means when he says all. As in, end of verse 1, he urges us to pray for all people. Verse 2 Pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Verse 3, this sort of prayer is good and pleasing to God, who, verse 4, desires all people to be saved. Lastly, verse 6, Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. So four times there we see the word all. What does Paul mean when he says all? We could use the word all to mean every single individual one. All. Without exception. All can mean that, but not always. I want you, church, to pray for all people. Paul, do you mean every single individual person without exception? There are seven billion people on the planet. Maybe only one billion at Paul's time, but still. Do you mean every single individual person without exception? Pray for all who are in high positions, kings and otherwise, 
all, every single individual, one of them without exception? Do you mean every single mayor, every single business CEO, every single military officer, every single congressional leader, in every single Congress, in every single country, in every single parliamentary member, in every single governor of every single province, every single one of them without exception? Not hardly, no. All could mean every single individual without exception, but it could also mean something else. All without distinction. All sorts of people. All kinds of people. Not just white people, Asian people, African people too. All people. Like that. Or in Paul's context, this is why he mentions at the very end, I'm not, I'm not lying, this is honestly the truth, to the Gentiles too. All Jewish people and Gentile people too. All people. That's what it means here in this paragraph. All sorts of people. Without drawing any lines, without drawing any distinctions, without ruling out some and ruling in others, all people. Without distinction. And getting that clear, then we're able to hear what he's saying to us, the church. For all sorts of people, don't exclude anybody. Don't draw any limiting lines. Not just Christians, Muslims and Buddhists and the irreligious also. Not just for your family, but neighbors and classmates and workmates. And not just easy and dear and sweet people that seem nice, but your enemies and those who persecute you also. Not just your fellow Americans, if you're an American, or your fellow Uduk or Mexicans or Chinese. For all, for everyone, I want you, church, first, to make supplications. That is, to make request of God for their specific needs. What are they? Well, ask them. Or, or think, understand, Make supplications. And I want you to offer prayers. Now, a lot of these words kind of overlap. They're close. But prayer has a particular a little emphasis on, I want you to remember all these people before God. This God who is merciful and gracious, bring them to him. And I want you to make intercession for them. That is, to go on their behalf, in their place, pleading their cause your father, he knows everything, so he, he knows who they are. But, but you have his ear. You're his child. You can pull into his room and sit on his lap and tug on him and say, Father, will you please for them? So petition him and, and remember them in front of him and, and ask him for things. Plead their cause before him, giving thanks for them for those ones out there, giving thanks for them. There are much, there is much in the lives and, and out there in other peoples that we who are Christians, we have much to give thankful for in them. Much common grace that God gives to everybody that we experience, that we enjoy, and that we benefit from. The contributions that all people make into society and that benefits us, the friendships they give us, the help thankful for all people without drawing any lines. Pastor Jed beautifully displayed that this morning as he prayed for Muslims of all people. Rightly so. Muslim people who see their son, daughter, brother, wife, shot dead by somebody, to pray for them. What are their needs? I don't know. Let's think about that for a second. What might they need? Beautifully displayed this truth in that prayer. Petitioning our Father, thank you, Lord, for this person, for these people. Lord, would you please look upon him, upon her, upon them, and please give to him, help draw 
bless, touch, speak to, work for, intercede for, change. Father, please for them, praying for all people, not just your Christian friends, and this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Verse 3. Good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. He wants us praying like this. Why does he say it's good and pleasing that we pray for all people without distinction, without drawing any lines, without ruling anybody out and saying, not those ones, no. Why does God find that good and pleasing? Because, verse 4, he desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now we begin to see why it's important we understand what Paul means by all people. Because as he keeps using the same language throughout the whole paragraph, he doesn't change what he means. He means the same thing all the way through. Pray for all sorts of people because God wants to save all sorts of people. And your prayers will have a piece, have a part in that, in that work of God to save all sorts of people. Them ones and them ones and them ones and them ones. All sorts. That does not mean that he saves every single individual person. Or even that he wants to, but for some reason can't. It's not about individual people at all. It's about all sorts of people. And it's trying to blow open our mission scope to stretch our minds so that we see big and wide match God's scope and to pray bigger and wider for others and not to fight against them or to dislike them or ignore them or argue with them, but to pray for them. And no, this is, this is so, this is, this is like, first, I urge this. Now what we're going to see here eventually, if you, if you think where this, this goes, it talks about this testimony given in the proper time, verse 6, and Paul being appointed as a preacher and a teacher, so we're going to talk a little bit about, eventually, and I say a little bit, about testifying to, not testifying to me, the testimony here is not about me, it's about Jesus. So there's, there's a piece here, and we're going to talk about a little bit, about proclaiming this message, but the emphasis sure falls on praying first. And that's what is explicitly urged upon us. Like, we're not actually explicitly urged to proclaim. That's Paul. But we are urged to pray. There's an emphasis here. Pray for all. They don't know the truth, Father. But will you show it to them, to her, to him? All people, to pray like that. So, do you pray like that? Do you pray for those ones like that? It's very common for us to pray in, in reference to me, in a reference to my loved ones, maybe in reference to my church, maybe in reference to the, the Christian world, or maybe in reference to my nation. And that's good that 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 be increasing in its scope, but he wants to press that as far as it possibly can go to be about all people, the ones not from our nation, the ones not from our faith, the ones not from our family, the ones who aren't very nice to us. Didn't Jesus say that in the Sermon on the Mount? Pray for those who persecute you, the ones who aren't nice. To push out prayer beyond our, our narrow scope to ask God to work in their lives in whatever way is necessary to bring those things before him, to ask him to intervene and to show himself to and to save. Praying in light of this worldwide mission and also living in light of the mission because that's where the praying of verse 2 goes. Pray for all people, that is, if you want to narrow it down a little bit more, for kings and for all who are in high positions, places of prominence, for a reason, 
so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives, which is not so that I can have some peace and quiet. It's not. Very tempting to pray that way. We often pray that way. Would you just calm things down so that I can have some rest? But peaceful and quiet does not mean that. Peaceful and quiet means something more like pray for government to be effective enough so that we're not victimized by illegal mobs and not beaten on the street corner. We don't have our house burned down, our family run out of town. Paul meant, I'm going to stand up and preach in a crowd, and if they immediately seize me and stone me or they throw me in jail, that's going to shut down that preaching. So Lord, would you uphold those in positions like centurions and those like Roman governors for them to say, no, 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 that's illegal. You're not going to do that and put a stop to it. To bring peace to this town. And you see it right there in that illustration. Why? Next phrase. So that we can live lives that are godly and dignified in front of everybody else. Godly so that I can live a life that is God-word, that is obedient to him, that follows after him, that, that declares who he is in word and in deed, and in a way that is dignified in the eyes of the people around me, those for whom I'm praying. He's praying for a peaceful and quiet place in which he can live as a witness in which the gospel can spread. So he looks at the Roman Empire and says, I'm praying for the Roman Empire because not only does the centurion and the governor protect me, but also the Roman roads are laid out here so I can travel from city to city and I can trust that I'm not going to get mugged on the way because the government works. There's peace. Pray like that. So we pray for other people, for all other people, with an, with an eye on the mission, and we pray for living towards all other people with an eye on the mission. Not just for me, for my own peace and quiet, but for peace, for a purpose. And I can live in a way that other people would look at me and say, I don't know if I agree with all that theology, I don't know if I agree with what he says about Jesus, but there is a person who we need in this world. person who lives with dignity, a person who contributes and blesses, and who, maybe unbeknownst to that person, is showing us something of what Jesus looks like. So a life that matches and a prayer life that matches the mission. So not only do you pray, but is that, how, is that what's behind your life? I think probably, I mean, if you read this passage and, and you think about even the, the types of songs we've, that we've been singing this morning, you think about it and you hear as a Christian in the church, yeah, okay, there is a, a, a great importance for the idea of mission in the world, okay, but I bet that a bunch of our default living is, is really just about, I want some peace and quiet. I want to be left to have a life that's okay. So, life of self-comfort or life of mission focus? Which is it? Life of self-comfort or life of mission focus? Which is it? Which does he mean for it to be? Right out of the gate. Right out of the gate. I laid the foundation of sound doctrine, and now I've laid that foundation. Here's the first thing that that sound doctrine is meant to feed in your life. And if you don't actually engage with this and just keep feeding, if you don't actually engage with this mission, it'll be unhealthy for you, church, Christian. And right out of the gate, pray and live in light of the mission. It's what he calls us to. Never getting far from God's saving plan. Not just to be declared, but also we understand it, that that's what's, that's what's true for us too. 
We never get far away from God's saving plan. That leads us to the second point. Second observation then. God has acted to save all sorts of people in his one glorious salvation plan. God has acted to save all sorts of people in his one glorious salvation plan. You could underline God has acted. So it's not just that he wants to. He has acted to make that happen. We'll move into this from verse 4. God, our Savior, desires all sorts of people to be saved. He's a Savior who wants to save. And that word used there twice kind of reminds us of something. We touched on it already, but we didn't actually clarify it. There's a problem. There's a problem in the world. And this is... Earlier I prayed about the difficulty of putting together two things about the, this worldwide, this universal scope and this particular. Here we're moving towards the particular piece because there's a problem that we cannot skip over. We talk about God being Savior and that should alert us. There's something I need to be saved from. Savior means savings needed. What is, what is that about? What does that mean? Well, it's assumed in some ways in this passage, but it's not assumed elsewhere. It's quite clear. All people, as in every single individual without exception, the other sense of that, how do I know I'm, how do I know I should say that? Well, Romans 3 says, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one individual, every single one, every single individual, every single one is unrighteous and has sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, turning from his law and turning from his glory, earning from him the only God who is right, just, wrath. Period. Every single individual on the planet is in that boat. That's the boat I was in, the boat you were in. The boat that every single individual is resting in without any recourse. There's a problem. We're, we're on a boat. We are headed towards a judgment and there's nothing that you or I or anybody else in ourselves can do about that. We cannot save ourselves because we cannot change our natures. The Bible says that we're in rebellion against him and we need to be saved from that. Every single individual and that is exactly, this, this is what's good and glorious about this, that, that, if that if that was all that there was, and if there was only God wants to save people from everywhere, God wants to, if that was all there was, we'd have these two things here. We'd have a dilemma and a desire, but they would not meet. I would love to be a billionaire, I suppose. I've got a desire, but I've got a dilemma. I'm not a billionaire. So it's, it's nice to have desires. But if, if they can't meet up with reality and address the, the, the gap, what are we going to do? Well, we're not going to do anything. He has. And this is what's glorious here. God intends to be a savior. This is his heart, and he's acted on it. It is so much his heart, it's fair to call him by title, God our Savior. He's a God of mercy and grace, and he wants to save. And, and follow the logic here. There's a, there's a really interesting piece of logic in this, in this passage. Why does God our Savior, our God, 
the God of the Bible, desire all sorts of people to be saved, we might say it's because of his love. It's because of his gracious nature. And, and there's definitely important truth in that, but there's a different point being made here. Read it with the emphasis on all. Why does God, our God, the God of the Bible, does, after all, he's the God of Israel. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses. He's Israel's God. He's Paul's God, the God of Israel. But why does he desire all to be saved? Verse 5, 4, because there is one God and one God only. And one mediator and one mediator only between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So to put it simply, he's saying God's scope is all the earth, not some subset like ethnic Israel, because God is the God of all of the creation, not just the God of some subset like ethnic Israel. He's the only God there is. He's the only show in town. All the other religions are fake. Now I sound a whole bunch less universalistic and a whole bunch more specific and exclusivist, right? Yeah. He wants to save all sorts of people in one single particular way because he is the only one single particular God there is. And all the gods of all the nations are fake. And all the other religions of all the other gods of all the other nations are false. There's one God and he wants to save all peoples because he's the God of all the peoples, the only one. And he's acted to save earthwide from all of his creation, not just in certain subsets. This is where the passage goes. How has he acted to save over all of the earth? How has he done that? And this is a beautiful and glorious truth here. And it is easy, sometimes in the church, to use the word glory and, and to kind of connect that to God, and we sort of expect it. But at the same time, it's a little bit confusing because what exactly does glory or glorious mean? Is it just kind of like a way of saying, you know, very or really or some superlative like that? Glory. Glory is a word that's trying to emphasize for us something that is exceptionally good about God and in some exceptional way shows us his character, shows us his glorious nature, his exceptionally good being. This salvation, this one salvation that this one God has worked out for all people is glorious. It's glorious. It is exceptionally good. I emphasize that so that we don't miss something, that it sounds exceptionally good to be about all, and then when you come down and get real narrow-minded, it sounds small and mean. No, 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 no. That there is a way that God will reach all through this way is glorious and exceptionally good. And if this did not exist, there would be no way else to do it. This is glorious and good and sweet and beautiful and it comes right out of the heart of God. This should draw us to, to worship and to give thanks and to have great confidence in him. Great confidence in him because he's the one who planned it and he's the one who's carrying it out. He's the one who's acting on it. And he will do it. This, this God here, the one God, 
is glorious and his plan is glorious and we see that it, how it encompasses so much time and so much wisdom and so much planning over centuries and centuries. It worked through the ages. Paul mentions the testimony given in the proper time and he's trying to give a nod to the fact that this story had a really, really, really long lead up. And then it came. But for all that time past, for a long time, God was working through Israel in a very focused way for a very long time. Not because God is Jewish. He's not. God's not Jewish. But he worked through the people of Abraham, starting with the Abrahamic covenant way, 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 way back, and said, I'm going to work through you, and I'm going to bless you. Why? So that all the nations can be blessed in you. Let me work out over centuries how that happens. That's glorious. The wisdom and the power over a long time, over great distances, through generations, to work out a plan to eventually bless and save all the peoples through Abraham. How did he do that? Well, ultimately by bringing his Messiah to the earth. This Messiah, Christ, is the only mediator between this one God and people. The mediator, Messiah Jesus, a man born in the flesh, born of people, like us, and also at the same time fully God, not like any of us. The power, the glorious power in this that God could make a person who's fully man, just like all of us, who's a human being like all of us, and also has another nature, a fully divine nature. He's fully God, not like any of us. God in flesh. Glorious. And he comes to serve as a mediator because he's God in flesh. He can stand as a mediator and say, I put one hand on humanity, I'm there. And I put another hand on God, I'm there too. And I'm going to work it to connect it. These two, people and God. He's the one mediator for all people, not just Jewish people, all people come to solve our problem, to save us. There's wisdom there, and there's, there's amazing power there. But more glorious than that, there's immense mercy and grace there because this comes from God who wanted it to happen. God sent the mediator. We didn't offer up one. God wanted to mediate the problem. He wanted to fix it. He could have looked at this dilemma and seen a people that he wanted to save but who were so wretched and so rebellious and so evil that he said, I actually want to destroy you and wipe this out and been done with it and protected his world and made it holy and right and perfect again. He could have done that, but he didn't. He wanted to solve the problem and so sent a mediator, this God-man, this Jesus there's great mercy in that and great grace in that that provided what we needed. That's God's plan. Provided what none of us could provide. Specifically, verse 6, this one mediator, in him he provided the one ransom for everybody. All peoples of all sorts, everywhere, have one ransom and only one. This word itself even brings up to mind how it's built. It brings up to mind a payment that's in place of. One payment offered in place of human beings. The mediator puts his hand on both and says, I bring these two together by offering up the one ransom that gets the deed done. In sin you deserve wrath. That means death. 
but I offer myself in place, me in place of, instead of you, offered in place of human beings, a ransom paid to set people free. And it works. Because God provided it and God wanted it to work and God counts it as sufficient payment for all who trust him. Christ came and died on the cross in place of all who trust him to save all people. Here's a substitute death offered in the place of people, no matter who you are. You are not beyond this. You are not separated from this ransom. You are not uninvited to this. It's not offered for someone else. There's not a table laid out here full of blessing that you're not allowed to eat from. There's not a cup of covenant that your hand is slapped down when you reach for it. Christ the mediator, the one mediator, came and called out to all Anybody who is weary and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. All who come, without distinction. And Christ the mediator said, I will be lifted up onto the cross to die. And whoever believes in me will not perish, but will have eternal life. Whoever believes. Without distinction, you don't have to be born into a Christian home and you don't have to have your act together. All who believe will be saved. That's a promise from Christ himself. He really does desire all people to be saved. What's required of you then? Only that you come. Not that you be anything else, but that you come. That you come to him in humble faith. God the Savior wants you and everybody to hear it. And he invites you and everybody to come and talk to him and say, here I am. I guess that's a ransom for me. I want it. Can I have it? And he will not say no. But will say yes, in fact. He will say yes. Lord, there's a ransom that I need. Can I have it for me? Would you pay my sin with Jesus' death? And he will say yes. There is glory in this. It is a display of the immense good nature of God, that he is wise and that he is powerful, that he is patient, that he is merciful, that he is gracious, and that he is loving. The one God says to all the world, way back when I was talking to Abraham, I was talking about Abraham and his people after him. From every tongue and every tribe and every nation, all people. Come and take me up on the offer. I will not say no. All you who are weary laden, whoever believes. That's the testimony given at the proper time. And Paul was appointed a preacher and an apostle a teacher even of the Gentiles. All people. To tell them that, to carry that message out and say, here's, here's what the one God has done to save. And that's for you. And clearly, if that hasn't been where you are, the invitation is, come to him. Trust him and be saved.
For most of us here, it is fair to say, most of us here, I'm already there. I'm already there. Yeah. Bless God. Bless God. You're, you're already there. You're already there because God acted to save you in, in sending as one mediator. That God, if, if you think of it like this, when God was talking to Abraham, and Abraham, he said to Abraham, look up at the stars, Abraham. Would you look at the stars? He said, that one right there, that one's named Steve Clark. You don't know him, but I do. Put your name in there. That one right there, that one, that one, that one, because way back, God determined to save you. Not you. He did. That, that's a glorious thing. It's a sweet thing. You're an object of this great God's wisdom and power and grace and mercy. But then, here's where this comes around to what I said I was going to mention very briefly at the end. Because if you look at it, there isn't actually any command or any statement to you or I about go out and witness about this. It's not there. It's not there. Which seems odd. Right. Shouldn't it be there? Right. It doesn't actually say. It says Paul is the preacher and apostle and teacher of the Gentiles. It doesn't say anything to the church about go out and witness that seems really odd. Like, it seems like the church really should be about that. Like, we should be talking about this. If we're praying about it and living before people, this should just like come off of our lips. If we're actually overwhelmed by the glorious nature of this God who, who said, that's me, that would be just flowing out of me, wouldn't it? Right. 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 So where I want to end here is if it's not flowing out of you, why not? I ask myself that because, if I'm honest, it doesn't really flow out of me like that. College basketball flows out of me. Military history flows out of me. Etc. flows out of me. But that doesn't really flow out of me like that. I don't find myself to use somebody else's phrase, gossiping about the gospel all the time to everybody, to all people. Why doesn't it? So why do, ask yourself, why doesn't it flow out of you like that? If it doesn't, why doesn't it? I think, as I try to look at myself, and maybe this is you, I think I've got two basic problems here that actually wrap us right back into the verse. I don't really care about other people. Let alone all people. Just most people. I don't care about. I don't really care about them. And I really want some peace and quiet. For me. Maybe that's just me. Maybe it's not just me. So is it you? If it's not flowing out of you, do you really desire all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? Your Father does. Your Savior does. That's what he wants. Lord, maybe the first prayer needs to be, would you change my heart? Would you actually, refreshingly, convince me of the fact that I was not owed this salvation, but I'm an object of glorious grace and extremely patient mercy? That's me just like all of them. And you don't love me more than you love all of them. And you want them too. Would you change my heart and refresh me with that? Give me a great confidence that this work is not, I have to be done by me, it's done by you, but through me. And move 
me to follow you into this work. You're acting to save. I want to be a part of that. But I want to want to be a part of that. If I'm honest, I, I don't really, I'm not there yet. Change me. And then, would you free me from the, the oppressive deception that life is meant to be lived here? This is passing away. I want some peace and comfort for a little bit, for just a little bit of time here. But would you show me something that's eternal? Give me a desire for heaven, not for heaven on earth. That's where it has to start for me. He wants us involved in this spreading too. It should be a natural next thing after I'm praying for and living for. It should want to be proclaiming for the people that God's after in his mission. It's his calling on us, the church. So let me pray towards that end. Lord, we confess where it's appropriate. I confess for us that we love all people far less than you do and want to grow in that. So help us, please. Help us, please. Would you give us perspectives this week, maybe even today, of, of maybe like moments of sight where we see people and see them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Give us moments where we see that, please, and move our hearts for them. And also, Lord, would you move our hearts with your glory, with the kingdom that is coming, that is, that is dawned on this earth, but is not contained in only in this earth, but is coming, and make us live for it and for you, and make us live and pray and proclaim for them, too. We, we need your help in this, Lord. It, is, it isn't us right now. But help us with it, please. You're a kind and good Savior, and you've saved us, and so we say thank you. And pray that you would build up our hearts and build up your church to your honor. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.